Hello and welcome to Sitcom Geeks. I'm James Carey. I'm Dave Cohen. And this is episode 146. And we will be back with Rufus Jones on the road to home part two. That's coming up in a moment uh, to, to listen to. But first we're going to do some sort of comedy parish news. Uh, Dave, what have you got for us? Yeah, uh, just uh, I think the main thing that uh, I wanted to talk about was the uh, the Brocliffe BAFTA um, Award, which we've mentioned a couple of times. That that competition uh, finishes on the, the the 7th of September. You got till the 7th of September to to enter. They're asking for various things, but the main uh, thing that they want from you is uh, 10 pages from your sitcom. Um, almost certainly, I would imagine that, it, that the first 10 pages is probably the best uh, to use. Uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, so I wouldn't send the last ten pages. Uh, that that feels like quite a gamble. Yeah, but I mean, I, you know, if you you've, you've got a fantastic, brilliant scene in the middle that, uh, and, and and you can sort of set it up nicely and have the consequences after, then possibly that. But I, I you know, I think I think in most cases we're looking at the first uh, ten pages. So um, that's kind of uh, something that you. Uh, it's we 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 we've actually got uh, we did an. Episode episode didn't we James at, uh, talking specifically about how to make your first 10 pages really stand out um, we did episode 126 is honing your first 10 pages yeah so go and listen to that and that will just help you kick the tires on your script and uh, just polish it up and yeah. or or at least work out that there are some things you can fix and some things you can't but the things you can fix you might as well fix so get on with it some of the things you can do, and I've been reading a lot of scripts recently, and um, you know, you've you've written a whole script, and you've got little bits of setup maybe in your opening ten pages that are vital for a big thing that happens on page twenty-five, um, but you can you can lose that and you might as well you might as well lose anything this is just a little bit of help an extra bit of help on the uh, BAFTA thing is because you're only giving them the 10 pages uh, you can help yourself by getting rid of uh, any unnecessary plot so you can that that the, the 10 pages that you have is can all can almost be sort of cheating slightly and could almost be your first sort of 12 pages but you miss out bits that aren't relevant so you'll be able to get your big moment of your story that happens and then at least maybe one big consequence of it that would be great you get two you get two nice big chunky things to happen in your script so yeah. just just you know be be, be brutal with your editing i think that's yeah. the, the the uh the first yeah thought um the second thing i just uh, the thing i've been noticing a lot recently in scripts is about um giving away your best secrets and so much of um writing uh, a script as opposed to say writing a book is uh you can't you can't uh have people's inner thoughts uh in a script you have to be able to show them sometimes and uh i think some people kind of miss that and and too often we get the whole story we get you know when someone asks a question to a character why are you doing this well they say oh because i da 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 and actually they don't want to tell you why they're doing this at this point uh so better that they don't say anything and we pick up that this person is obviously hiding something what are they hiding i want to know i want to carry on reading just don't you know just don't give everything away uh as quickly as possible um have you got any other any thoughts to, to add yeah to that? that's good i mean you want to you can say that 
you can be clear that the audience are not getting all the information as long as the audience are clear that they don't have all the information. Yeah. But otherwise, you are going to confuse your readers and that is not something you want to do. Confusion is the enemy of comedy, as we often say. Yeah. Um, the thing you do is you put, you know, like instead of saying uh, that they put the answer, you say, you know, kind of, uh, you know, air character, James brackets, he means yes, no, you know, he says, and he actually yeah. says no. And that, that kind of tells the reader and the audience, okay, this person is lying. I don't know why yet, but I, I know that they're lying. Yeah, yeah. Know. So if you go to sitcomgeek.blogspot.com, uh, five mistakes in the first 10 pages of your sitcom script, and one of them is you're not actually writing a comedy, you're writing a murder mystery. Um, yeah. And what you're trying, you know, and lots of people basically make it like the first 10 minutes of Endeavour where you see three or four different characters and three or four different situations and none of it really makes any sense at all. And that's that's fine if it's Endeavour, if it's a two-hour ITV uh, murder mystery with a detective that we already know and another detective who we also know and the sidekicks and all that kind of stuff. So I think sometimes people try to think, well, I could write a sitcom like that. And actually, that really is going to stop your sitcom from being funny if all you're going to do is show fragments of, oh, somebody comes out of, out of a door and then they lock it and then they unlock it and then they walk away. And then somebody's in a garden shed and they're potting compost and then they reveal that there's a secret bottle of something. And then someone else is, is just like, this, is, this isn't a story. This is a series of... Um, of, of mini vignettes and you don't have the luxury of doing this in a in a half hour script and certainly not in the 10 pages you're showing that you're going to send in to show what you can do with half an hour yeah so i think that's a, so i think you want to be borrowing from other genres very very carefully if you're yeah. going to do that and and also don't fall into the uh trap i think because 10 pages is a relatively short amount and you do have to uh hit you know, to use the cliche, you have, you do have to hit the ground running, but you know, do be aware. Every every uh, movie has a five minute intro. Every novel has a, like a couple of uh, chapters, or you know, every joke has a setup. You know, don't forget to put the boring stuff in at the beginning that at least establishes where you are and who these people are, uh, and hopefully what this is about and what this world is about. So be, you know, don't don't uh, don't just don't try and be too clever in the opening half page. Just just really kind of say, okay, I know what I'm doing here. I'm setting up this place. Uh, I can go anywhere with it, but I need you to uh, trust me first that these are real people and this or believable people uh and this is going to go this adventure is going to go somewhere uh unusual um so yeah i think those are the kind of main main points really uh yeah. i wanted to be clear about have you got any any last thoughts about that the 10 pages then james um i would just go and read that uh, so i go and listen uh, to that episode 126 and you will get much more information uh, much more detail on that but you know just make sure it's funny make sure the first two pages of your 10 pages is brilliant because they will have made up their mind by the end of page two whether this page 10 page sample is actually going to do it or not and if your first two pages haven't done the business uh, then you've got quite an uphill struggle with the next yeah. eight pages to, to undo that 
Hmm. And apologies if it sounds like we're asking uh, we're asking the world of you, which we sort of mm. are, really, because yeah. it isn't easy. It sounds like sometimes some of the things we might be saying might be contradictory. But um, I guess um, we've gone in this country. We've gone from uh, a, a culture of people saying don't listen to a word that experts say. Uh, we've gone now to uh, you have to listen to absolutely everything the experts say, and if it doesn't work, it's all the experts' fault. So. Mm. Uh, just to say that um, we know we only know what we know, uh, and and sometimes not everything we say agree, uh, agrees with everything else we say. But we're just trying to kind of give as much um, as, as much information to sort of help push your script forward as, as we yeah. can. And at the end of the day, one absolutely kick in the guts, funny joke or moment in the first two pages. And a really good character will get you a really long way, even if the structure and everything else is completely all over the place. Um, you know, just a proper, proper funny thing, uh, which just creates joy for the reader who's ploughing through uh, dozens mm. of these things. Yeah. Then that, that will get you quite a long way. So, so, And that's how unscientific it ultimately is, despite yeah. all of the do's and don'ts that we are uh, yeah. issuing. So the next thing um, is, what, what have you got for us, Dave? Was it something to do with the comedy crowd? Uh, yeah, well, uh, yes, that's right. The comedy crowd, they're a, a kind of, uh, their group, they've been going for a couple of years now. They've been involved. They've, they've put on various uh, competitions and things. Uh, they were, I met them at the uh, Hlandidno uh, Comedy uh, Writers Festival in 2018. And they are trying to do a lot of stuff, get a lot of new, uh, new writers and producers uh, and cr- creating new, sort of online uh, channels for comedy and they've got a competition they've got a, a like a sports uh, sketch show um, they got into a little bit of a, a, a Barney about it um, last week because they were basically asking people to pitch their ideas and uh, charging them a fiver um, for for uh, the, the the joy of doing this which which kind of uh, I mean everybody knows there's not a huge amount of money around and a lot of a lot of writers do do a lot of writing for free uh, as, a, as a sort of uh, gesture of goodwill but actually being charged to pitch an idea that might not uh, see the light of day felt like um, they'd gone a bit too far there was a bit of a Ferrari about it yeah. uh, on social media but they, but they put their hands up pretty fast and just said okay we, we misjudged that and to be fair it is very difficult because you do have to you know pay a bit of money to enter the Rowcliffe BAFTA awards and that kind of stuff so you know it, it, it was always a bit of a fine line and it just felt like what they'd done hadn't quite landed but it's still now it's so the current situation is if you want to write sketches that are sport based then this is something that's probably worth having a look at yeah and you don't have to pay a fiver anymore for it as well. Yes, so there, there we so go. There go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, and then the last thing I was going to mention was uh, the uh, while we're on the subject of money, the uh, Live Comedy Association has uh, finally kind of uh, elbowed its way into the conversation. Uh, it took a lot of hard work of the... Um, £1.75 billion that the government has made available to the arts, uh, in inverted commas, because a lot of people have sort of turned their noses up at comedy and think, oh, comedy isn't the arts. Um, But that's partly because it has made money on its own anyway, without being subsidised. But it needs money now, and and the the latest news is that I think a a lot of comedy clubs are getting their act together, and they are hopefully... um, 
trying to get some of the money through so it's still looking very perilous for the live comedy situation but um hopefully some of the clubs may be able to um survive a little bit longer and um meanwhile if we can continue to uh support all these people who are doing things as uh, people are putting on uh comedy shows in back gardens now that's a kind of new thing uh you, you get four or five comedians turn up to your house and perform in the back garden um so it's like sort of a performing upstairs in a room in a pub <laughs> sort of uh, idea and you pay what you can so so there's things like that and there's other people they're trying to sort of drive in comedy shows and stuff so uh all sorts of uh interesting ideas now uh if you can help in any way support any of these ideas locally or or online then uh that would be fantastic we record this in the middle of august i genuinely do miss the edinburgh festival just being on and knowing that it's mm. on it yeah. just feels like it's just wrong. Even though, yeah. you know, I used to do Edinburgh a lot. And then you have this liberation that once you stopped in the Edinburgh Festival, you sort of realise halfway through August that you didn't need it after all. Um, and then once you get quite good at comedy, you can go back and do slightly better. And that, that feels good for a bit, but it's not really a proper a proper thing. But overall, it just feels not great that a whole load of experiments in comedy are not happening um and hmm. although there is an awful lot of stuff that doesn't really work it is a the edinburgh festival comedically and for theater and the arts generally it's just brilliant and it's just really hmm. sad that it's not happening and that is the great thing about um, the, the, the not working is actually the, the, one of the, the key elements is because uh, you know the, if you the, the only way to find out if your comedy is working or not is to uh, there's nothing like doing it in front of an audience every night for 24 25 nights in a yeah, row yeah. and you know if it does work and you are good you know then you 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 can become brilliant yeah. and you know many people have found their careers through edinburgh many yeah. of the great comedy people and it, it, you know it is the ultimate word of mouth festival yeah. it's just a, a it's it, it's just a fantastic place to be there is anybody a, yeah. there is a meritocracy about it isn't there i think there is yeah. that you know a good a really good show does tend to do well and yeah. there aren't that many shows where hand on heart you said that was a brilliant show and nobody noticed yeah um, it may not have gone stratospheric but some people will have noticed and so it is a meaningful place to do stuff. So it is worth thinking ahead to 2021, assuming, you know, World War Three doesn't yeah. start or, or the aliens <laughs> oh, don't God. land or something. Yeah. Um, you know, it or is worth just about. it's not safe to go outside yet. Yes, even. exactly. Yeah. <laughs> something as banal as yeah. that. <laughs> and the best thing about Edinburgh also is the fact that you, you, you have a genuine audience of people who who don't know you and so they're not really your friends so they're an mm. honest audience but they are a fringe audience so they are receptive and they want it to do well and they've paid a bit of money normally or they are going to pay a bit of money and they're happy to give stuff a go they're a pretty open-minded bunch i mean very open-minded in some cases um so you know worryingly so occasionally um <laughs> but do you know what i mean there's just it, yeah. it, it's like it because it if you did a similar show, and that's why the Camden Fringe has never really quite taken off. It's because mm. the audience is not quite there for it. Whereas in Edinburgh, millions of people go there to see comedy and they'll see eight mm. shows, you know, in a day. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, and and it's something about the kind of uh, everything about Edinburgh. You know, the fact that it's a, it's a, it's not a massive town, but it's big enough. Yeah, uh, and it's beautiful, and uh, it's you know it kind of just the whole place has gives gives itself over to all aspects of the arts, yes. not just comedy. Whether it wants to or not. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Yes, you do uh, meet yeah. the occasional person, but even you know the vast majority of Edinburgh people, you know, they just. They Adore it. Yeah. They just—it's just a fantastic. Like not the ones who bugger off and, and yeah. rent their flats out at five times of the the. the no, they ador- they adore it too. <laughs> they ador- that's true. But, but for you know, other reasons, the, the other people yeah. who stay and come, and it's just and it is. Uh, and I remember the first time that I didn't go after having gone eleven years in a row, uh, and it was nineteen ninety five. And this is what exactly that feeling that I had now is that on the one hand, it's like well. Oh right. Well, you know, I haven't really. Um, I'm not. I'm not missing it uh, on a kind of the basis of I'm. I'm mm. not doing something there, so I'm not. I'm not invested in it. But I am missing. I've missed that whole sort of build up. That whole kind of uh, sense of uh, comedians and people really kind of trying to get something uh, special mm. created in time for August. Yeah. That's been a bit it's been that's been quite a sad thing, I think. Yeah, no, definitely. So that's a bit sad, but I have a feeling it's it's too big to fail and it will return. <laughs> like the Royal Bank of Scotland. Indeed. The Edinburgh yes. Fringe. Yeah. yeah. So um yeah. so we should probably get on with our ch- chat with Rufus, but bef- just before that, yeah. we've already recorded um two more interviews so patreon subscribers have already had access to this rufus interview uh for a month or two we've recorded a brilliant interview speaking of the edinburgh festival with jenny a claire um and so patreon subscribers have already had access to that and we've just recorded former perrier winner of the, uh, former the edinburgh perrier, festival. exactly <laughs> and but we've also just recorded um an interview with an amazing woman called joanna penn uh, who is both an independent author, but also brilliant at self-starting, getting your work out there and actually making a considerable amount of money off it as well. So she speaks about money in quite specific terms in a way that is unusual but refreshing. Um, mm. uh, so I've just been listening uh, through to it um, just to you know check it over. And, uh, and yeah, no, it's nice to have somebody actually talk honestly about trying to make money as well as trying to you know be an author. And, and the two are not mutually exclusive it's just they, they tend not to overlap as much as they as they might and the other thing as well is that although she is not remotely involved in comedy in any shape or form what she what she saw happening in the world of uh, self-publishing 10 12 years ago is uh, that is kind of where we are now i think with comedy is that the the, the the future of comedy in the next five or ten years is definitely going to be online making it yourself um obviously as well as the 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 the, the big yeah. stuff being out there but I think that that's uh, and, and some of the advice and the pointers that she gave are absolutely brilliant I thought yeah absolutely and and so actually your way into the comedy world might be partly through uh, through writing uh, the written word and I'm thinking of Jason and Joel uh, Jason Hazley who was a guest on the show ages back talking about ever decreasing circles and um, and so they did a thing called the Framley Examiner which was almost like you know it was an onion type publication uh, which was like a spoof local newspaper. And it was it's just incredibly funny. Um, mm. And that got them a little bit of exposure and they ended up on in, in Charlie Brooker's sort of orbit and they've been working with him for a long time. So the written word is something that actually com- comedy writers tend to be quite receptive to. They tend to cherish comedy books. We should probably do an episode um, on on comedy books a bit. But, um, uh, but yeah, anyway... 
So we should crack on with with Rufus. Um, he's going to yep. now dig into the story about uh, about the TV show Home. Uh, it's a really uh, fun interview. He's such an incredibly nice man as well. Very well brought up, I thought. Mm, and marvellous actorly, actorly tones as well. Indeed, so a yes. Pl- that's right. A pleasure to listen to him, yeah. really. So um, yeah. we, you won't hear from us again on this episode. So uh, thanks for listening. And um, here is Rufus. Let's talk about um, Home and how that came about and how, um, I mean, in terms of what you'd written before then, this this is probably a bit of a, a bigger, you know, you're tearing off a fairly big chunk here um, because there's a point at which you had to write a half-hour script and then they said, great, we'll have six. And, the you know, the champagne went off and then the colour probably drained from your face when they said when they wanted them. I, I don't know. How did that work out for you? Well, that, that, that's exactly how it worked. <laughs> Except the moment, the space between me writing a script and getting a yes was about four years. <laughs> so right, there really, was, there was a certain time to prepare. But but I remember when we got the yes, it was exactly that. I heard on a train at six thirty p.m. and it was a Friday evening, and I was coming back from London, and I allowed myself two days to be sort of just objectively excited about it before before the sort of yeah the 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 white knuckled terror sort of took hold, and then you you get a be excited about it possibly when it goes out but um i i was look i i i was in a slightly unusual position maybe uh, in that i'm not a pure writer i most of my you know job is acting so i was able to say right i'm going to take this two weeks and just write the script so i wrote it on spec basically um so i didn't wait for anyone to uh uh, to commission a treatment, for instance, or or do it that way, and I I fully understand that actually as a, as a writer, it's it's important to demand that treat uh, treatment and and demand to be paid often. But in terms of in terms of that experience of home, I I uh, I was watching a lot of uh, the the terrible images coming out on the news in two thousand and fifteen of the Greek islands taking in this this exodus of people from Syria. Um, and uh, I read some articles in The Guardian about uh, some amazing families that were taking Syrian refugees here. And those experiences did have little sort of weird sort of golden nuggets of sort of comedy. And uh, that sort of sent my more sort of pragmatic kind of radar sort of beeping that this might be an interesting, an interesting area for a comedy, but also uh, an, interesting, an interesting subject to treat quite contrarily as a comedy. Um, and so I wrote a script in five days and I just, wow. I just did 28 minutes in five days. I felt quite happy with it, but I, it was definitely rushed and just, you know, I, I just wanted to kind of capture my own enthusiasm while it was, while it was still, you know, bubbling. And that's from a standing start from yes. idea to 6,000 words, five yes. days. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Uh, and, and I, I sent it to my producer, a guy called Adam Tandy, who, uh, your listeners will know from like League of Gentlemen, and uh, he does um, uh, Inside Number Nine. Uh, think of it, Armando. Yeah, he was yeah. Armando's producer for years. Uh, yeah, he's he's a he's a great guy. And a few years before, he'd contacted me because he'd liked something I'd been in, and he said, "Do you write?" I said at the time, "No," but I will. Uh, can I send you anything when I have something? And I, I wrote this thing in five days. I I didn't allow myself to to get uh, to start doubting it, <laughs> so I I, I press send immediately. 
And I just said, wow, I've had this that's idea. That's really interesting. Yeah, I, I sort of, you know, with the sort of the braggadocio still feeling confident. You know, you have a, a 24-hour window after you've created something, possibly, where you think this this is still not uh, terrible. <laughs> and yeah. so I sent it in that that period of confidence. And um, he, he, he kind of wrote back, as I remember, sort of two hours later, he, he phoned me back and said, I really like the idea of this. Let's make it. And three years later, we did. But that involved uh, getting a, a script commission uh, from the BBC. So I'd secretly written it. But what I then did was, you know, write a treatment. And we sort of went through the BBC, yeah. the, the, through the appropriate channels. And I just rewrote it. It didn't go anywhere at the BBC. Um, it was with BBC Four at the time. And they were only doing one show a year. And it wasn't ours. So it was, you know, understandable. Uh, but Adam went across the road to Channel 4, who immediately became interested. Uh, and they gave us a blap, which is one of their sort of 10 minute online kind of pilots. Uh, and they liked that. They commissioned another script. And all told, that was probably about two years um, between the BBC commission and getting a series go from Channel 4. Right. Goodness. And to what, how much did the the first episode, as it were, of series one, how closely did that resemble the thing you wrote in five days? Weirdly, it sort of stayed the same. Um, there was okay. A, there, was a, there, was a, there was an extra plot, so there was an extra strand that went in, but actually a lot of the dialogue stayed the same and, and the basic architecture of episode one stayed the same. Um, uh, but obviously everything else then had to, had to, had to emerge from it. Um, but yeah, oddly, it wasn't. It, I mean, it was the one we we tinkered under uh, under the hood with a lot, but the but the, the bones of it were were pretty constant. Um, I think I think because I I chanced upon the sort of the reveal of the first five minutes and the way I wanted to treat it because it, it it's a very striking sort of opening five minutes where we reveal our hero who's a Syrian refugee in the back of a back of a van. I, I think when I I hit upon that early that probably wasn't going to change. Um, and yeah. and so because it was such an upfront dramatic moment, uh, it bought you a lot of character development in that first series before before the sort of story took over. Was, was, there, a point, um, was there a point in the casting uh, at which point you said, that's our man? <laughs> because, uh, again, that's... 100%. Yeah. How, how, how did that uh, come about? I... I didn't have a clue who could play this this character and uh we held a very open casting with our casting director who brought in about 30 or 40 people um some of whom were actual refugees with little or no uh acting experience who probably weren't going to get the job but they were fascinating we talked for a long time and uh and and then uh Yusuf Kukur who ended up playing this character walked in he was the complete physically the complete opposite of what I sort of considered to be the kind of refugee who could stow away in the back of a car boot. He's six foot seven and about 17 stone. But he sat down and yeah, within 30 seconds, I think me and Adam Tandy knew it was his. He was just, he, he, he's a, a, a dramatic actor mainly, but he has a, a total comic intuition. Um, he just, he can read a joke and he can deliver it with the beats that we're all familiar with but as we all know that's a very there are very few people who can do that you know 
So when you he find is, him, he's he does ground properly of, funny. Yeah, oh, glad you think so. Because he's totally straight. Because he's he's totally straight. And my favourite bit, I just watched episode two uh, very recently. And I mean, it also meant a bit to me because I'm actually an actual Christian. So when it turns out that he was a Christian and whatever, he understood that term. But that moment of embarrassment where he reveals, I'm not, I'm not a Muslim. That's right. <laughs> it's like a, That's it. And no, he's I, I just, know. It was, uh, he's just, he's great. Weirdly, that, that episode had our, our one, the one moment where I, I'd been very lucky in the writing in that my, my intuition had been fortunate. And I, I, this is not born out of any particular knowledge or hundreds of hours of research I'd done. I'd just been very lucky in terms of how the character Beats had fallen. But that moment where we ask him, basically, yes, we realise that our guest, our refugee guest, is not Islamic. He's he's Christian, uh, kind of Coptic Christian or a Syrian Christian. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... Uh, uh, and but we ask him. Well, look, we've gone to all this effort of putting sort of Islamic sort of regalia in the in your room. Could you sort of use it anyway? And could you kind of pretend to do an Islamic sort of call to prayer because it would mean a lot to our son, um, who's who's kind of dressed the room. And it, it, when I thought of that, I thought, great, that, that it's an absolute banker. I know exactly what to do with that scene. And I remember Yusuf taking me aside very early on and saying, look, um, in the script you have the character getting into the sort of call to prayer position. And then we do a, we basically do a secular version of Allah yeah. Akbar, you know. And he said, look, just to let you know, uh, as an observant Muslim, the moment you get into that sort of position on your knees, hands and knees, uh, you are, you know, you are kind of active. <laughs> you are sort of religiously active. And if you then embark upon a secular reading of that and Yusuf put it so brilliantly he said you will probably attract attention to this show that you don't want or don't intend yeah. and he was absolutely right and so we ended up having him not on his hands and knees but just sort of busking uh and what turned out I think to be an Arab uh an Arabic folk song uh which sounds to the untrained ear exactly like the sort of ululation of a Oh yeah, yeah. Of, of a moezi, but also you know. we we got a translation underneath, and yes, I, I'm, I, that's really interesting, and that yeah. goes to show that you know you had a funny version on the page, but also he had an insight. But actually, you came up with a re that's a really funny scene when he's there on his own, looking around the room. One of the most memorable scenes, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but that's the idea of the compromise, I guess. I was talking about that sort of you mm. have to. Um, you have to keep your ears open and you, you have to yeah. be able to to hold these scenes very, very close to your heart and at the 11th hour, uh, let them go and become something entirely different. Yeah, because, yeah. because stuff like that is just, you don't want to get in the way of, you know, yeah. that. My other question that I thought was, uh, that I'd love to know subconsciously, consciously how you did it, because I thought what total brilliance it was in the very first episode um, is... Yeah, that lovely scene where uh, where your character is sat next to your uh, stepson, or as it were, or, you know, girlfriend's uh, son. And there's that wonderful moment of realisation where you just think, this kid already has an immigrant in his house and it's you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, yeah. You, and, and you have a problem with this immigrant and it's not even your house. Um, and there was a lovely kind of microcosm of the show within the show that i just thought oh ruddy heck how the heck did he do that i would <laughs> never have seen that um yeah. and it just feels like 
it's a relationship that has uh, just a total resonance. And it's so hard when you're setting up a show that you just grab things that work and plumb them in. Yeah. And hope they become more than the sum total of their parts. But that was a bit where I just thought, oh, that is, wow. Um, I hope that's intentional. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was, it was. It's, it's um, yes. Uh, I'm trying trying to think where that came from. I think I think it, really, it came kind of quite early on again. But it, uh, the other thing that was going on, uh, and it's it, it you know it's easy to forget around the time of the Syrian crisis was the referendum, uh, the the EU referendum, and uh, I think early on Adam, my producer, raised the very tantalising point that this show, although it is about this refugee from Syria, it's also an opportunity to look at where we all are, uh, a, a, a country that uh, has, you know, proudly considered itself, uh, you know, a, a melting pot and quite sort of centrist and reasonable in our views is now being divided. Um, and people are feeling strangers in their own home, basically. And and, and this was even, I started writing before the, the referendum was decided, but when, you know, sides of bus buses were beginning to tell us things uh i i think i think it emerged as much from that that uh the idea of someone it, it's not just refugees or foreigners who may be feeling alienated in this environment it is it is british people uh no, yeah. no matter what side of the the argument you're yeah. falling in terms of the eu people are looking around kind of thinking hang on where do i live and i think it was a matter of just kind of like a you know, like a source, just reducing it and reducing it until you get to the, you know, how micro can we make this? I I like the idea that your character, for instance, was actually, uh, you know, and and it's very rare to see this in the world of comedy, but to see somebody who is a sympathetic character, uh, somebody who voted for Brexit, and uh, there right. there there is. While I would say the sentiment of the show is probably uh, not pro-Brexit, but your character yeah. gives voice to that side of... Uh, 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 that, that, that often yes. I hear in the comedy world when people talk about Brexit, they talk about people who voted for Brexit were stupid or whatever. So it, 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 was, it was quite refreshing to have that uh, in there as well. I mean, how, yes. how kind of important was that to you? Yeah, it was really, it was really important because I, 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 think, I think the one thing I, I've always felt about that, and, and, you know, I come from a family who, who voted in different ways on the referendum and, and uh, you, you always, you, you clearly become aware in terms of your own family that, that people vote not necessarily looking outward, but often sort of as a result of what they've been through personally. You know, it's it's a response to their own history or their own trauma or their own hopes and fears about their children or, you know, a, a kind of positive, in a weird way, you know, positivity can, you know, or a, a positive hope can produce an unusual voting choice. You know, and I think that doesn't just go for the EU, it goes you know uh, across across the world at the moment you know there are trump supporters who only want the best for their family um and 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 there are people who won't who would have voted for bernie sanders and now they can't so they'd vote for trump yes exactly thinking, exactly i don't i don't see what what axis are you voting yeah on? you know what i mean it's yes it's exactly and you know it? yes exactly the, the sort of logic just sort of ends up sort of helixing so quickly into something very confusing mm. that from a dramatic point of view in life it's very frustrating but in 
as a dramatist or as a writer, you kind of go, my God, this is this is fantastic. Because <laughs> what you're able to do is take a take someone with a kind of bogeyman, a, a nominally kind of bogeyman sort of set of ideals and and try and show where that might have came from. And actually, you know, in, in the, the case of my character, someone who is who is quite xenophobic but it's all coming from a sense of anxiety about his own place in a family that he wants to do well by. Um, that is a, you know, that is a, a, a rich seam as a writer to get involved with. And it was something that I think the EU, the, the EU referendum and the whole Brexit debate was showing us at the time, you know, mm. that actually it's more complicated than good and bad or, you know. Um, mm. so, so, yes, it was, it was probably a response to that, I think. Um, yeah, yeah, but I, I, funny enough, I was, I was thinking about it before I came on. Sort of, in terms of the, like the one lesson I learned as a writer writing it, uh, and it goes back to a previous script I had. I, I had a script with Hattrick years ago, uh, who were a product, big production company in London. They do like Have I Got News for You, and if if, if your listeners haven't heard of it, and I did a, I did a um, a script for them, uh, and and it took ages, and it didn't amount to anything in the end. But I learned a lot, and the big thing I learned was a. An assistant who was working on the script saying all the characters are talking in the same voice, and I said, "Well, yeah, but I don't want I don't want them all to be a different, you know. I don't want her to be the bossy one and him to be the, you know, him to be the hippie and you know the kid yeah. to be this smart talking. These all feel like types." And and she said, "Yeah, but you know, if you break down Arrested Development, all these characters are pushed into sort of quite radical corners." in terms of their views. And even if you look at, you know, Faulty Towers or any sitcom you choose, Seinfeld, all these characters are extremists in a way. Mm. Um, and what, uh, what I discovered, uh, I, think, I think she was entirely right, and all my characters were much too centrist in kind of their attitudes. Yeah. Uh, what you realise as a writer, or what I realise as a writer, is actually a really good exercise, is to push your characters as far apart in opinion or thinking or belief as possible. Because an actor, when he finally gets his his or her hands on it, will always pull it back to the centre anyway. Because an actor's job is to make it believable. That's and I think if you, if you're oh, writing, that's interesting. If your writing is extreme, I think an actor will always pull it back anyway. But if you if you if you're after authenticity and you kind of go, yeah, but I just want these characters to be uh, different in a nuanced way, it'll all get lost. I think I think, and I think commissioners yeah. as well need to see very different characters and it's amazing how if you make certainly in my experience if you make the characters as different as possible it's incredible actually how, how, how harmonious and believable your script yeah you do need to yeah you do need to hold your nerve especially on the page and <clears throat> although th this this anecdote ends in failure i did go to uh, i had a meeting about a script that i wrote with a character who is um a monster and the the general feedback was this character's basically very hard to like and i said do you know what i think if you if if you cast this person or that person you'd like them and they could get away with an absolute fortune you know they could get away with so much and they just said nah it doesn't really and i thought and, I, and so so they were trying to persuade me to make her nicer and i just said no i can't i'm not i'm not going to do that and it's one of the only times i've ever actually said in a meeting we're done then, aren't we? Because work. you want yeah, me to yeah, do this, yeah. and I, I can't do the thing because I know that it'll just make it bland. Yeah. But if you cast if you cast Imelda Staunton 
as this terrible person, the audience will go, oh, it's Imelda Staunton. She's great. She's lovely. And wow, I can't believe, you know, like, so... Funnily enough, I'm writing something now for someone in exactly that sort of national treasury sort of Imelda Staunton role. And it is, it is a malcontent. It's exactly what you sort of just described. It's someone that if I, if I hadn't got this person already attached, you, 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 you would have weeks and months of conversations about, about how dislikable this person is. And I suppose it's the one, the one advantage of, of, trying to get a star attached yeah. uh, or someone who has a very established uh, likability in the hearts of the nation is that it allows you to get away with that 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 extremism that that actually you know a lot of a lot of great comedy uh, relies upon you know is, is the life force of it. Uh, are you are you allowed to tell us any more about this project at this stage or I'd better not I'd love to ah <laughs> oh, fair enough okay <laughs> I wish I just wondered, because um, this is something that we, we talk about a lot, and it's great to get, uh, when you get somebody who acts uh, to interview, to say, you know, like, when, when you have a script in your hand, what you know, the things you're looking for, and I know that you've, you've the, the, the things I remember you from, particularly written by sort of great writers that I know, like Neil Forsyth and, and Tony Roach, and uh, I, I'm interested to know what sort of things you take away from when you've got a great script in your hand what is it that you as an actor are getting from the writer i tell i, I tell you one thing and it's more of a practical thing than the than the than the page is all the best writers i've ever worked with have uh have been have been on set a lot and one of the first things a great writer will say to you as an actor is oh and if you have any ideas do throw them in and either talk to me or just do them in a take and, 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 and we'll see what happens. I mean, Tony Roach, who uh, your listeners will know from like uh, Veep and uh, The Thick of It, and Tony was like that. I, I did a thing about Monty Python with him that he wrote called Holy Flying Circus. and It's a majestic piece of work and your role, and you, and it, you are hilarious. Oh, it's so brilliant. But it is, it is the best script I've ever read. I mean, it really is. And, and I, I remember standing up and applauding in an empty room in my bedroom while I was reading it. Yeah. It was just so good. And yet when we got on set, uh, Tony was so hippie about it. and just yeah. kind of, Tony is very hippie. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just, uh, you know, if you've got any ideas, just, you know, throw them in. And if you don't think something works, talk to me about it. And and that's not just modesty. It's it, I think it's, it's somebody who's been around TV sets a lot and knows that... Uh, you've a writer will have written something in a certain way on the page, and when you get to the set, the set is often different. So a a scene that was written for you know two chairs and a table can suddenly not have the table there, and it's an armchair, and or it's a chaise long, or um, and suddenly there are lots of other extras, and that all just that all can slightly shape the tone and the whole vibe of the scene differently, and you you have a choice to make where you either just uh, barrel through the scene regardless of the fact that a lot of the practicalities of the set, the scene have changed or you embrace uh, what has changed practically on uh, you know in the in the telling of the story and I think it's always better to embrace it so I think writers who are willing to uh, try something new uh, on the day are great um, I, selfishly I you know it's, it's probably because I enjoy that as a performer and I've, I've worked with people like Julia Davis who actively encourage that 
It's not for everyone. Because I say the Holy Flying Circus, I think, is a really good example of talking about writing from other people's points of view and and pushing characters, but also uh, humanizing different points of view. Because in actual fact, that it would so be it would be so easy to write a version of that Holy Flying Circus about about the life of Brian controversy to say the Pythons were crusading brilliant people and the religious people who didn't like it were idiots and let's and they were the authority figures and the bishops and let's make them look stupid and actually they show a really good voice multiple voices within the pythons who sort of some of them don't quite know what they're getting into some say oh look just stuff it who cares some who are and then you have the religious bishops who take it badly but then other religious people who are going uh, oh, we need to think about this differently, maybe. And so there's a range of views, and they're all really, really well portrayed, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, it's uh, yeah. I mean, Tony uh, to, to have harnessed all all the nuance that he did in in an hour and a half, basically, was amazing. I remember I remember very early talking on t- talking to Tony. He told me something Terry Jones, who I played, had said during the uh, the kind of the, the sort of kind of media trial of Life of Brian where um, Terry Jones said, this is not blasphemous, uh, the life of Brian. It's heretical. <laughs> in the, <laughs> what, it's, what, what we specifically were going after was organised faith, organised religion, yeah. and particularly the circumstances around, uh, yeah. Yeah, around that period. Um, uh, he said, if it was blasphemy, you'd know about it. <laughs> you know, we'd have written that, that script. And I thought that was brilliant. And... and and you go back, and they were talking in those terms, and that, that's that's really nuanced stuff that, um, of course, kind of gets lost in the kind of pattern of age. But uh, yeah, th- things like that, Tony just got really stuck in with, and uh, above all, was able to ape um, each of you know the style of uh, of Cleese and Chapman's writing, the style of Jones and Palin, and then yeah. the style of Basil Fawlty as well, because Darren sort of chose to play Cleese as Basil Fawlty rather than a kind of real Cleese, which was brilliant. Yes, that was extraordinary. But uh, it was a great performance, though. It was it was a lovely work. But I think what our listeners can learn, because our listeners are trying to write sitcoms, I think it's, it is just being as generous as possible to characters who hold contrary views to you. Um, it's trying to imagine what if this person is your, you know, is a member of your family? How would you like to see them portrayed? Um, and I think that kind of humanity, I think, is something that we can learn from. Because quite often you read a script, we know we read a fair amount of scripts where you think that this character is a cliche. And a cliche might be OK, but it feels like they don't really exist beyond the words that are being said. Um, and I guess as an actor, you have to inhabit that, don't you? And you have to a- approach it. And, th- and inherently you, th- you humanise it by being human and portraying it. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, and and you're always looking to make these voices kind of authentic because they're not your words. So how how do you how do you you know lasso these words into your delivery and make it feel <laughs> make it feel sort of you know believable? And and invariably, like I was saying, most actors do sort of just if if what they're saying is extreme, the the presentation of it, the delivery of it, will not be extreme because that would be boring and that would be you know. Uh, hectic probably so you know um it, 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 i think yeah I, th- I think sort of being contrary as a writer is probably a useful idea like be contrary to the obvious ask yourself what would uh, exactly what you say why do people what, what why would the, the person the character's family still love him <laughs> and 
and and play that in the writing. Um, you know, write that version of the character uh, yeah. rather than and also anything in, else. and the reactions of the characters as well. I think uh, might help. I remember that we've said mentioned before how the first series of Parks and Rec talking about shows that take a while to get going with regard to Seinfeld. Leslie Nope seemed like a moron, and you you do and her 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 colleagues were a little bit like get a load of her and she felt slightly out on her own and then what they changed was not the character but the reaction to the character where all of her character all of her colleagues clearly thought the word of world of her because she worked really hard and she was really kind and considerate even though she was a nut job yes um yes. and was for the next eight series that, that's entirely right i think um i remember seeing going back to seinfeld that that amazing episode in series five or series six called the opposite i think it's called where George George Costanza decides on the advice of Jerry or something to do to say and do the opposite of his instincts, and within the episode, his his fortunes just change overnight. Well, you can tell what a genius idea that was because that that kind of it kind of runs for the for a little, like, the next series and a That's half. That's right. Almost, they just go. Yeah. But but that for me feels like the distillation of what a writer's instinct should be. You know, what is the opposite you could do here? Because invariably, it's not as it's not as mad or or phony as it might initially seem. Um, to to do the opposite to what the convention uh, tells you to do with this character or this situation uh, is is eighty percent of the time more interesting. Yeah, it's. I think Charles Corrin said that his dad taught him to don't write the first thing that comes into your head because everyone knows everyone knows what that is or the second thing or the third thing because someone else will have written that you know write the fourth thing you know and i think but then again there are times when you just need to go with your gut and your original idea which is here is how the show home starts and if we don't start like that then we've you know you've you got to peg something into the ground at some point yeah you, you do I guess. you do and i think I, I i i mean going back to home the sort of the things that were pegged was Yes, he comes back in the back of a boot. He's not Islamic. He's Christian. And I, I sort of thought what would be interesting with that is it just adds another layer of supposition and prejudice. And, you know, everyone will assume he's Islamic anyway. So, you know, it's, it's just another, it's another example of just being slightly contrary uh, to expectation. Um, and, uh, and, and, yes, I think you do have certain tent pegs. Uh, I suppose... I suppose it's difficult because, strictly speaking, it's a sitcom in form. It's 28, 24 minutes, but it has a story. It has a very clear narrative running through the series. So we're not restarting in quite the same way that a, a, a traditional sitcom would. And what that means is that I knew exactly where I was going with the story um, and how that story had to develop from episode to episode, which is not necessarily something you get uh, well it, it comes back to the thing about what comedy sitcom and comedy drama uh and and those things but uh you uh, i i i gather there aren't going to be you you said you don't want to do any more series of home is that is that true or is no, that, no no oh, no i haven't oh. no 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 ah we um no unfortunately channel four aren't in a position to make anything at the moment um because they uh were, were speaking in the sort of you know the, the the frenzy of corona and um they overnight have been the first channel to have been hit very hard by the reduction in advertising revenue so they have basically uh they are not recommissioning anything across the board at the moment channel four because they can't 
Um, so we are going to talk to them about a third right. series. We have, we have, a, we have a third series mapped out. It makes, I have to say, this environment makes mapping out a comedy uh, or anything actually particularly hard because um, quite what the world will look like by the time something, you know, a show transmits, even if I was right to write it today, you know, it wouldn't be on till March 2021. And trying to write for the future in this environment is 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 yeah. crazy. So actually, I think it's possibly no bad thing that everyone's just taking a breath in terms of commissioning because, you know, you could you could come up with the most artful, beautiful series three and it just wouldn't resonate because, I don't know, you know, um, that the world looks different. So, so we're sort of taking a bit of a pause, but I really, I'd, I'd love to do a series three and, uh, yeah, we'll just see, you know. Hmm. Well, lots to look forward to there. We should probably, uh, wrap this one up. We're so grateful, uh, Rufus for, for your time and for your insights. It's really, there are loads of really big lessons there uh, for people to learn, um, that you had to learn the hard way. So thank you for sparing us those so that we could learn other lessons ah, the hard way <laughs> great to talk fellas uh, yeah but that's really great um thank you so much rufus thank you very much thanks very much for listening and we'll speak to you next time bye bye <laughs>